And last week, we left off of kind of doubling back on chapter 2, verse 36, and we had looked at this chart here, and I did make some um, edits on this chart since last week. I f found a way to just, doesn't look quite as nice as it might have, but it's, it's uh, saying what I'm wanting it to say now, which makes me happy. And um, in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar, that God gave Nebuchadnezzar, and let me just preface the beginning of this by saying that when we get finished with chapter 2, which is going to touch us into some of chapter 7 and some of Revelation 17 and 19. I, just this week, just given consideration of the reality of pr prophetic um, scripture such as we have in Daniel and the, the, the very graphic nature of it, it definitely puts somebody in between the, the, um, the crosshairs as to whether you're going to believe the God of the Bible or you're not. There's no way around the reality that the revelation, the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar and the interpretation that he gave Daniel is stunning. I mean, it's, it's chilling. It really is. This is the God we serve. This is the God who reached down in time and history and by grace alone drew a sinful heart to himself and gave us free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. It truly is Staggering. So I want us to go back. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to go back and look at this interpretation with greater detail than we did last week. Last week we had more of a summary overview that got us through verse 30, 35. Um, so we're going to pick back up here in verse 36. So um, in verses 36 through 8, uh, Daniel, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, indicates to him there in verse 37. He says, You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. And then at the end of verse 38, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, You are the head of gold. So currently, if you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know much about Yahweh, but the little he does know is significant. Remember, all of the king's wise men had told him previously that only the gods were able to reveal to him his dream and its interpretation, and that no king had ever requested such a request or demand from the wise men or the conjurers or the sorcerers or the magicians to be able to actually foretell a man's dream and then give its interpretation. They said only the gods could do this, and it's... Daniel's God that just has done this. The f and, and the fact that he has done this from Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint point, could not be disputed. Nebuchadnezzar knew that what Daniel had told him was the dream that he had had, that had been stirring his soul and keeping him up night after night. And here in verse 37, as part of the interpretation of his dream, Daniel's God lets Nebuchadnezzar know that everything he possesses as king of Babylon See where it says the power, the strength, and the glory? Every bit of this came to him by way of Daniel's God. The God of heaven who specifically gave him his earthly power and strength. And again, insomuch that Daniel's God has revealed to Daniel the king's dream, that which was humanly impossible, must have been somewhat of a huge ego boost, I would think, for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, just try to imagine, try to walk a few steps in his shoes. I mean, after all, he was just told by the gods that he was the head of gold. Proof in and of itself that the gods were on his side and in support of all of his efforts. Can you kind of imagine that? I mean, that, for, I think if I were in his shoes, I would be feeling pretty... Um, self-assured right about now. And it seems to me that this dream and its interpretation, if you think about it as we continue through, the, through chapter 2 and the begin, are, are simply the beginnings of what God's going to be doing evangelistically in the heart and mind of Nebuchadnezzar, of showing him who's really in control and just how small he truly is by comparison and of how majestic and powerful the true God of heaven and earth really and truly is. 
we will see this developed, this theme, this concept over the next few chapters, which climaxes at the end of chapter 4, when we will see Nebuchadnezzar say these words, and I believe with a full heart mean these words, when he says in chapter 4, verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so again, this is why I think um, God's doing some evangelistic work in the heart and mind of Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter 2 with Daniel's interaction with him for the very sole purpose of elevating Daniel within his kingdom. So in the interpretation of this dream, we discover that the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar, representing the Babylonian kingdom. And we also know that the Babylonian kingdom was what? It was a real kingdom. It was a literal kingdom on earth that lasted approximately from 612 B.C. to 539 B.C. The head of gold, Babylon. And next was the breast of arms, uh, the, the breast of silver, of breast, of breast and arms, of silver. Excuse me, I'm stumbling over my words here. I guess it was the word breast that got me there. Next was the breast and arms of silver. Then in verse 39, Daniel says, And after you, so we go from one to two here, And after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. And although he doesn't specifically make reference to silver, it's obvious that this is a reference to the kingdom that followed the head of gold, which according to the history books were the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And back in verse 32, this is where we see the connection of the breast and arms with the silver. As it says right there, the head of the statue was made of gold, and this is how we know that follows right after the gold is the silver, which was the breast and the arms, which made up the Medo-Persian Empire. And what we also know is that the Medo-Persian Empire, this kingdom was also literal, as was the Babylonian kingdom. And it lasted approximately from 539 B.C. all the way down to 333 B.C. And the next kingdom that, Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar saw and that Daniel foretold from the dream was the belly and thighs of bronze. A third kingdom. And again in verse 39, Daniel goes on to say, then another third kingdom, and he names it, which gives us a clear reference that the, that the Babylonian kingdom would be the first, and that the, the breast and arms of silver would be the second, and then there's another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So again, a literal kingdom without question that rules over the earth. And again in verse 32, Daniel in describing the statue says that its belly and thighs were of bronze. So if you know anything about your history, you know that it was Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire that overthrew the Medes and the Persians. It was written of Alexander the Great that he wept because there were no more lands for him to conquer. He was a warrior. And the Grecian Empire we know was a literal kingdom that lasted from 333 B.C., all the way down to around 63 B.C. So what have we seen so far? We've seen one literal kingdom after the other, after the other, down to the legs of iron. And in verse 40 of this interpretation, Daniel says, Then there will be a fourth kingdom, again a reference to the number, as strong as iron, insomuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In verse 33 of the dream, Daniel, in describing the statute, says that its legs were of iron. And from history, we know that the Roman Empire seceded the Grecian Empire in conquering it. And Rome was known as the Iron Legion. They crushed and devoured everywhere they went. And as the statue had two legs, as we see here, we know that in, six, in 364 AD, the Roman Empire was split into two, into the Constantinople uh, Empire and the Roman Empire, one from the east and one in the west. Constantinople in the east and Rome in the west. So again, another literal, physical, earthly world power in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as interpreted by the God of heaven through Daniel. 
And we know that the Roman Empire lasted approximately from 63 B.C. to 1453 A.D. Now, if you haven't noticed, and if you were just simply to do some quick math, from 1453 A.D. up until 2021, let's say, we're only about 568 years removed from the end of this portion of the Roman Empire, the 1453 date. It's 568 years that we are standing here today on the same planet that they were standing on all those many years ago. And they were receiving a word from God as Daniel revealed it to Nebuchadnezzar, a king of Babylon who was a head of gold. And here we stand some, let's say, rounded up to 3,000 years later, and we are still talking about this revelation even today. And we see in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar's dream was truly sweeping in its scope of human history and of the times of the Gentiles that we pointed out two weeks ago, the time in which Israel is waiting for God to do something in order to turn the tide of the Gentile dominion over them where he's going to fulfill his promise to King David in establishing his kingdom rule and reign on earth forever and ever, just as Yahweh had promised David in 2 Samuel 7.16. When God told David, he said, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And the good news is that is that, that kingdom is coming. Amen? And the next thing we see in the dream is feet and toes, partly of iron and partly of clay. Look at verse 41. So what have we seen so far? We've seen Babylon, literal kingdom, earthly literal kingdom, Medes and Persians, same, Greece, same, Rome, same. You're starting to see a, a theme here of earthly ruling world powers, kingdms. Notice verse 41. And in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it, referring to the feet and toes, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Now notice verse 42 and how Daniel focuses specifically on the toes. And as for the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. Here in verse 42 we're told that the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery. Then it says some of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. And we see in verse 36 why it's going to... 40, 36. Verse 43, why it's going to be so brittle. Notice verse 43, and it says, In that you saw it mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. And there's the problem right there. There's their, that's what makes this kingdom so brittle at the end. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now, these three verses, verse 41, 42, and 43, need and must be understood as belonging to the fourth kingdom in this dream. A continuation, an extension of the fourth kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which is the Roman Empire. Now, last week I referred to these three verses as being a fifth kingdom. You may recall that that was comprised of a revived Roman or European League of Nation-States. And while I believe that's true, I probably shouldn't refer to it as a fifth kingdom in that we learn very clearly from Daniel chapter 7 that there are only four kingdoms revealed in the dream. Which makes sense, and this is why I was referring to it as a revived Roman world power that will comprise, be comprised initially of ten world leaders or nation-states, as is indicated by the ten toes in the dream. And this is why I've labeled, if you see my, this kingdom, this right here, a continuation. See this four? See, we got a four here. Come over here, and we still have the fourth kingdom. And I put an R for revised. 
Does that make sense? Just in case you take a, a picture of this, this glorious statue dream of Nebuchadnezzar here. It's, the, it's in the same fourth kingdom and it's a revived Roman kingdom. Just kind of put back together again. And we know this to be an accurate interpretation based on the vision of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7, which was a dream and vision that Daniel himself had in the first year of King Belshazzar, who was the last king of Babylon, making at this time that Daniel received the dream, making Daniel an old man, probably in his mid-70s, at the time that Daniel received that dream in that vision. And Daniel's vision in chapter 7 mirrors the dream of Nebuchadnezzar of chapter 2. It's giving the same world history, it's giving the same flow of human history as we have in chapter 2, a preview of the world's history from Babylon to Rome all the way from beginning to end, just from a different perspective. And so here in Daniel 7, 17, I put a verse for us just to consider and here's part of the interpretation that was given Daniel from one of the angelic watchers. That Daniel asked, what does this mean? And this is what one of the angelic watchers said to Daniel in Daniel 7.17. He said, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth. So the four beasts of Daniel 7, as we will see when we get to Daniel 7, are also going to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And this is why it's right to understand from Daniel 2 that verses 41 through 43 are not a new kingdom, but instead a yet future revived Roman kingdom that is defined as being comprised of ten toes, each toe representing a king, a world power, a revived Roman empire is often how people refer to this, meaning of, it's an empire of European descent, a European League of Confederate Nation-States, perhaps ten world powers that are of European descent that will combine their forces together and take their stand against Christ and His saints in the end times. And this is exactly what we have mirrored here in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, which will simply give us more details when we get there. So in saying these things, let me ask you this question. Have we seen this revived Roman kingdom, this revived European League of Nation States, these world powers, perhaps ten of them, that have come together to combine themselves to make one solid force? And perhaps it was just for the purpose of self-defense. We don't know exactly, but they will come together. Have we seen that yet in history? I'm saying the answer is no. I haven't seen, nor has anybody to my recollection claimed that they have seen a revived Roman empire that consists of, consists of ten world powers that would consistently conform with Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Which means that this revived ten-toed kingdom that's mentioned in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and Daniel in chapter 7 is still yet prophetic. Its fulfillment is still in the future, waiting to come together in accordance with the will and plan of God under his providential care for his world. Are you following me? We just haven't seen it yet. But it's coming. And in the same way that Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, take one, were earthly kingdoms, literal earthly kingdoms, why would we expect that when he sees the legs of iron that develop into feet of iron mixed with common clay, why would we expect that all of a sudden that revived kingdom is going to somehow become spiritualized all of a sudden and not really be a real kingdom, but be something else? This is where one's hermeneutic makes all the difference in the world. And maintaining a consistent hermeneutic through the text is key. And how do we know that it's going to be a real kingdom on real planet Earth? Well, keep looking. Look at verse 44. It says in verse 44, And in the days of those kings, key phrase here, those kings, referring to the kings, the rulers of the ten-toed nation-state confederacy. And again, notice what Daniel is saying here. In the days of those kings, meaning whatever Daniel is about to say happens during the reign of those kings. 
whose world powers that make up this revived and loosely united European world power. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and a kingdom and that kingdom will not be left for other people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. We have every reason exegetically to believe that the continuation of this statue also represents earthly, literal kingdoms. The first four we have seen. The second part of the revived Roman Empire we have not seen yet, but we're expecting it to be seen because in the days of those kings, that's when God is going to do something in the establishment of yet another kingdom, his eternal kingdom that he will establish. And he's making known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in real time in history in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. Our God is going to set up a kingdom, verse 44, which will never be destroyed. Amen? The disciples themselves were looking for this kingdom when Jesus showed up in his first advent. The entirety of the nation of Israel was anticipating this kingdom, an earthly kingdom, when Jesus showed up in his first advent. And they simply did not understand the distinction between Advent 1 and Advent 2. And as a result of that confusion on those distinctions, they crucified their own. He came to his own, and they received him not. All a part of God's plan, all under God's providence, because Jesus had to come as a suffering saint, as a suffering Messiah, to do what he came to do on Advent 1, which has become the sin-bearer for the world. A perfect, righteous sin-bearer. And then in Advent 2, it's what we're reading here in verse 44, a kingdom that's going to set up, get set up that will never be destroyed. A rock that will crush the powers, the world powers of man. A mountain that grows, that encompasses the whole world, all the land, where Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and perfect righteousness will prevail. For a thousand years and then usher in an eternal state where there's a new heavens and a new earth. Are you starting to feel just how breathtaking Daniel chapter 2 truly is? That God has given us and left us, not just King Nebuchadnezzar, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. That is true. But he's also made known to you and I as well what will happen and take place in the future. We're just looking back on portions of it that Nebuchadnezzar was still looking ahead on. It's important to note on the literal aspect of this kingdom. Again, when we get to Daniel 7, we will see even more emphatically that this kingdom that God is establishing in accordance with the eternal kingdom that the Ancient of Days has given. We see that very plainly in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. More on this when we get there, but I wanted to read these two verses for you. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then in the balance of chapter 7, we see this theme repeated throughout chapter 7 there in Daniel in 18, 22, and 27. It says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Verse 22, Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Verse 27, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. So when you ask yourself, what's going to be given to the saints of the highest one? The sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of what? Of all the kingdoms, where? Under the whole heaven. Will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And just as, I'm going to repeat myself here for the purpose of, well, I say repetition is a great way to remember something, right? Just as the first four kingdoms of the dream in chapter 2 were literal kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, so too we would naturally expect, in keeping with the flow and obvious interpretation of the text, that the revived Roman kingdom and the kingdom of Christ... <coughs> that these kingdoms will also have a literal fulfillment as on this earth as did the others. There's absolutely nothing in the text that would inform us otherwise. Nothing. A revived Roman Empire of sorts, a European League of Nation States where perhaps ten European nations come together to form one united kingdom. Or perhaps it's ten other known world powers who join together for the purpose of world power and dominance. However it comes together, as Daniel said, the mixing of these nationalities will ultimately make them a very fragile alliance. And then the rock, Jesus Christ, at his second coming back to this earth, will finally bring to bear and establish a literal earthly kingdom as was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets as Israel's Messiah who was to come and was to reestablish and sit on the throne of David, establishing a kingdom that will never end, an earthly kingdom with Christ sitting on his glorious throne that will last forever and that will usher in the eternal state and the new heavens and a new earth. So again, what we've seen here in this dream is a sweep of human history from Babylon all the way to the time Christ comes at his second advent to establish his earthly kingdom as seen and described by the Apostle John in his book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We could pray right here. It's 11.03, so i got a little more time on my clock back there. So now, let me ask, why is there an interval of time between verse 40, the ending of the Roman Empire part 1 right here, in verse 41, in the revival of the Roman European world powers, right here. What happens there? Now, isn't that a great question? I'm glad you asked. And first, let me start an answer to that question by quoting Leopold from his commentary on the book of Daniel, as referenced and sourced by John Walvert in his commentary on the book of Daniel on page 170. This is what Leopold said regarding this issue, and I thought it was rather insightful. Why does the sequence of historical kingdoms in this vision extend no farther than the Roman, whereas we know that many developments came after the Roman Empire and have continued to come before the judgment? And here's what's key. We can venture only opinions under this head, Opinions that we believe are reasonable and conform with the situation as it is outlined. 
One suggestion to be borne in mind is the fact that the prophets, barring the conclusion of chapter 9 in Daniel, never see the interval of time lying between the first and second coming of Christ. In the matter of history, therefore, therefore, Daniel does not see beyond Christ's days in the flesh and perhaps the persecution as it came upon the early church. In other words, what he's saying is just like the prophets weren't able to distinguish between the interval of time between the two advents of Christ, so too Daniel wasn't permitted to see and thus disclose more fully those world events that happened between the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, the time of the first advent, and the setting up of the spiritual kingdom of Christ, which did take place, which is the building of the church during what we are now referring to and calling the church age. We need to remember that it was Jesus himself who said, when asked of Pilate if he were a king, in John 18, 36 through 37, Jesus answered, and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus' first advent was to seek and to save that which was lost. To be and then become the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This was something the prophets did not see nor understand. This was something that the original disciples of Jesus also didn't understand initially, but ultimately were given eyes to see the glorious gospel truth. That the Messiah must first come and suffer and be crucified, handed over, and then buried. And he even said to them, and, and raised on the third day, and hey, don't go tell too many people about this. That's kind of an odd evangelistic approach, isn't it? God began the building of Christ's kingdom, the church, people saved from every tribe, nation, and tongue through the preached gospel of Jesus, the Christ. After his first advent in the earlier stages of the Roman Empire. That's some of the history that Daniel wasn't permitted to see and tell about nor were the prophets, nor did the nation of Israel understand quite fully as well. And so he goes, Daniel goes, from the Roman Empire in giving the interpretation, or I should say God goes, because God, who, who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream? God did. And then God gave Daniel the interpretation of the dream, and, and in the interpretation of this dream, it just goes from a Roman Empire, the legs, right into the feet, of iron and mixed with pottery to a, rev a revived Roman world power with no distinction, no chronological distinction between the two whatsoever. And just like the first and second advents were smashed together and it was impossible to know what came in between until Jesus showed up in his first advent, so too the distinction between this, these legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay were indistinguishable in Daniel's time. Are you following me? No break chronologically, just one continuous statue, one kingdom, literal kingdom, earthly kingdom to the next. From the head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, legs and feet, feet of iron and partly of clay, to the rock of ages that establishes God's eternal kingdom on earth forever. And ever. 
Now, what I've just explained to you is what theologians call a premillennial view of Christ's second advent back to earth. And if you look at our church's doctrinal statement, you're going to see and find our statement on premillennial theology and our belief and our teaching therein. Which teaches that every one of these kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams are, in his dream is literal, from Babylon to Rome. So too we believe the ten-toed revived confederacy of European nation-states will be literal. And we also believe the rock that comes and establishes a kingdom that will endure forever and ever will be literal. And when you look at Revelation 17, you see a dreadful beast there that has ten horns that become ten kings for just a little while, which are the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. And that they give their authority to the beast, which we will see when we get there is the little horn of Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Way more on that later. They give their authority to the beast to make war against the lamb. And in verse 14 of Revelation 17, we again see that the lamb, the rock that was cut without hands, the rock of Daniel chapter 2, Notice what we see here, Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. And this Lamb is the rock of Daniel 2. It's the second advent of Jesus, the Christ. And the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. So in Revelation 17, you see a ten-power nation that gives its authority to the beast, the Antichrist, who is destroyed by Jesus Christ, whom in Revelation 19 returns to earth with a sword in his mouth and establishes his literal earthly kingdom that we call the millennial kingdom, which will last forever and ever and usher in the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Just like Daniel Tells. This is called the pre-millennial view. Understanding that Christ's second advent will precede a millennial rule and reign of Christ on the earth to be followed by the eternal state with the new heavens and new earth. Christ's second advent will be pre-millennial rule. And if you need more clarification on that, Please see Pastor Matt following service. And he is locked and loaded and ready to go. Or myself. Now let me read a portion of Revelation 19 for us so you can see this and make the connection. Notice here in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. This is when the rock of Daniel 2 makes his premillennial return to earth. And I saw heaven opened... And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great." And I saw the beast 
and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horses and against his army. Here we have the ten-toed revived confederate nation, European states, powers. They gave their authority over to the beast. We'll see that in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 as well. And they're prepared and assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And where is Christ and his army coming from? They're coming from heaven. Where? To earth. Why are they coming to earth? Well, they're going to, as it says, tread the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And then... The birds are summoned, and, they're say, and they were told to be prepare for the feast of the flesh of all men. Because these kings that make their stand in the beast against the armies of heaven, they have no chance. If you do a study of war in the Bible, guess who always wins? Yahweh. <laughs> birds. Yeah. God. The only time God's commanding army loses is when they're in sin and God chastises them. It doesn't matter what the odds are. It doesn't matter how outnumbered they may be. Verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds, there's the birds, were filled with their flesh. Here we see clearly the rock of Daniel 2 that comes back to this earth. Second advent to tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and judges the nations in righteous judgment. And following this advent and following this great military victory, Christ's earthly kingdom and rule will be established on earth for a millennial. And this is why we call it the millennial kingdom. Millennial simply means a thousand. So it's a thousand year rule. It's a thousand year kingdom over which Christ, following his second return, will establish. And so as we continue, as we finish up Revelation 19, verse 21, we turn to Revelation 20, verse 1. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a millennial, thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Those who made it out alive... Only those who are believers would enter into the millennial kingdom. We see in Matthew 24 and 25. The angelic messenger is coming down from heaven. So he's coming down from heaven to earth. And then he's binding the dragon, Satan, of old for a thousand years into, into the abyss so they would not deceive the nations any longer. And notice, until... The thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. More on that later when we get to the book of Revelation. But here we see in a very simple rendering, letting us know that Christ's rule and reign will be on planet earth. He comes from heaven to earth with the armies of heaven and destroys the, the armies and the nations of men. The birds eat their flesh. These aren't just mystical spiritual birds. These are real birds eating real flesh of real people on planet earth. And then an angel comes down from heaven and binds Satan, throws him into the abyss for a thousand years. And then when the thousand years are completed, that's the millennial reign of Christ, and hence it's premillennial. His second advent happens prior to, pre, before the millennial reign. 
He comes, and then there's a millennial reign here on planet Earth for a thousand years, according to Revelation 20. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8. And then after these things, Satan will be released for a short period of time in which he's going to try to deceive the nations again, and we're not here to teach the book of Revelation just yet. But this, my friends, is premillennial eschatology or premillennial theology, and I see no other reasonable approach. And that's not to say that there aren't other good men who see other reasonable approaches. I'm just telling you that I, having examined this as thoroughly as one can at the age of 53, still got many more years to keep reading, and I'm, I promise you, I will keep reading. But as I stand today, I can see no other reasonable or logical rending of the text than that the dream of Daniel 2 is referencing literal kingdoms from beginning to end. And everything in the text seems to fall in place perfectly and simply. That's not to say that other men might say, oh, but you see, this means that and this means that. I get that. I've read that. And I'd be glad to sit down and go over this with you more thoroughly with our Bibles opened. But I'm telling you, I think I'm right, and I think that it's exactly as Nebuchadnezzar saw and as Daniel explained. And the good news is, is that Christ is coming again. Amen? Come soon, Lord Jesus. And then in wrapping up Daniel 2, we need to wrap up Daniel 2, amen? 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering in fragrant incense. Nebuchadnezzar is taken back with Daniel's ability to both reveal and interpret the dream that only the gods were supposedly able to do, and here he's paying homage to Daniel. Now, if you remember, it was Daniel himself who in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2 told Nebuchadnezzar that his capacity to tell the king the dream and the matter and, and the interpretation of that dream had absolutely nothing to do with him. Daniel said very specifically that it was his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that gave him the ability. Daniel gave credit to God. He said in verse 45, quote, The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. Daniel never takes credit. He's always pointing back to God. And in verse 47, we see the, this bearing fruit. Notice what the king says to Daniel. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And so I put you on the scent earlier in chapter 2 that God, I believe, is doing an evangelistic work in the heart and mind of Nebuchadnezzar. And as we saw in chapter 4, God had to humble him greatly after a period of eating grass and crawling around under the heavens like an animal. We see Nebuchadnezzar giving praise to the only true God of heaven and earth, but we see, we see the, the uh, impact that Daniel's life and how God is using Daniel in the life of the king to bring him around to recognizing the only true God of heaven and earth. And in verse 48, notice this is what we started off in Daniel chapter 2, the elevation of Daniel within the administration of Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And in verse 49, we see then that Daniel elevates his friends. You know that song, friends? How many of us have them, right? Daniel had true friends, ones he could depend on. And like I said, you need friends like this. Friends that whenever you find yourself between the rock and the hard place, they understand that the most important thing friends can do to encourage and support one another is to fall on their knees before the Almighty God and seek His face for wisdom. And as Daniel said, all wisdom and power belong to our God. So let me encourage you to find said friends and invest your life running hard after our God. 
And Daniel made request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And it all started with a dream that God sent into the mind of Nebuchadnezzar night after night, stirring his soul, causing him to lose sleep. And it looks something quite like that. That face is a little bit scary, I have to admit. Kind of looks like, kinda looks like um, that beard right there. What's that guy's name? Willie? That'd keep me up at night too. What's that guy's name? Had that TV show. The Duck Dynasty guy. The guy looks like the Duck Dynasty guy right there. I don't know why. The, the big beard, I guess. But it all began there. And we get to the end of chapter 2, and I hope you, I hope you find a place in your heart. You need to, you need to, to, to do what the Old Testament writers and, would say when they get to a, a poignant trope in their writing and they would use the word Selah. Let that sink in. I pray that you'll find some time today to let this sink in. Do you believe Daniel chapter 2 was prophetic? Or do you believe that it was some guy writing after the fact, a pseudo-Daniel who already had all this in this information about the world kingdoms in advance, trying to act like he had the mind of God. That's what the criti critical scholars try to say. With one fell swoop, God slayed them, however, with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the dating thereof that demonstrated that those scrolls, which had the entirety of the book of Daniel, was dated exactly when it was claimed to have been written. Let this sink in. This is the God we serve. Let's pray.